Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Philippians chapter 1. That's where we are today in our passage, Philippians chapter 1. We're in a series of messages just beginning a travel through the book of Philippians today in the latter portions of the first chapter. And here's the key concept for this morning. Hope breeds courage. Courage is contagious. Hope breeds courage, and courage is contagious. While you're finding Philippians chapter 1, R. Kent Hughes tells the story of the death of Dr. Andrew Chung. Dr. Chung was a follower of Christ, and he himself was a surgeon, but he went to the hospital to have a stint cleared of a blockage. It was supposed to be a routine procedure. Everything was supposed to go well with no complications, but that's not how it turned out. There were complications, and soon it was evident that they could not go forward with the procedure. There was too much bleeding. And the surgeon came out and with a desperate voice said, We better get the family here. He may not live through the night. By the time that the shocked family assembled, Andrew was coming out of the anesthetic. He was in quite a bit of pain. But even in that state, he asked for a pen, and very slowly, he wrote 11 words in a vertical line. And the words were these, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wrote it in a vertical line because he couldn't keep a straight line in the, in the condition that he was in. And when he had finished writing those words, he spoke the only words that he said uh, before he died. He whispered to his family, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. That was his final declaration. And he found those words in the portion of Scripture that we will consider this morning, the words of the Apostle Paul, death is gain. But that's not how we usually feel. In the 1800s, Pastor Alexander McLaren came closer in his expression to what we usually find when we think of death. He writes this, many of us cling to life with a desperate clutch. Like some poor wretch pushed over a precipice, trying to dig in his, his nails into the rocks even as he falls. But not so the Apostle Paul. Listen to his words. Let's start the reading in verse 19, okay? You follow along in your Bibles as I read. He writes, For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's Paul's declaration. Let's recap the situation. Remember, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He is experiencing that for a period of two years. And while he is in chains and under house arrest, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is still being spread. Back in verse 13, he states that the gospel has become clear to the palace guards. He's thinking of those Roman soldiers who were his guards. Imagine those soldiers who needed to watch over the Apostle Paul 24 hours a day. 
Obviously, there were different shift changes, which means different groups of soldiers would hear Paul pray, listen to his sharing with the people who came to visit him. They would listen to his dictation as he dictated the letters that he wrote in that imprisonment. One of them, this letter, the letter to the Philippians. And as they were watching him, they saw a man with a God-saturated life attitude. And when you have a God-saturated life attitude, you'll view every situation and every, every moment as an opportunity to spread the Word of God. Paul's chains gave him contact with many who needed to hear the hope of Jesus Christ. He's confident that the Philippians are praying for him, that they are supplying his needs, and that with the spiritual help that the Holy Spirit will, will give him, he will be effective and, if, and eventually it will work towards his deliverance. He says that in verse 19. He's confident of his deliverance. But as a matter of fact, the word deliverance there in that verse is somewhat ambiguous. It could have been translated salvation, and it may be in some of the Bibles that you're reading. It can mean either eternal salvation that awaits us after this life, or salvation from the current situation of pressure or pain. Now, the NIV translates it deliverance. They're opting to think that Paul means to say that he is confident that he will be released from this imprisonment. And most biblical historians agree that that's exactly what happened. Eventually, Paul was released from this house arrest. But the core of his hope, his ultimate hope, is not just that God will get him out of jail, but that it's he will be able to meet the needs, meet the moment, and accomplish what needs to be accomplished for the glory of Jesus Christ as he holds on to the eternal destiny he has with Jesus. He hopes, in verse 20, that he will have courage. He has hopeful confidence confidence that he'll not be put to shame. In fact, he says he eagerly expects that he will not be ashamed. That word is a picture word. It's a phrase that, that, that is meant to call to mind someone straining to look into the future, lifting their head to see what's coming, kind of like a watchman peering out over the night, watching for a beacon that will tell them that things are, are well or maybe that trouble is coming. You see, Paul is saying, my focus is on the future. I'm looking past these present circumstances and what's going on around me because I believe that something great is coming. And I want to be able to stand tall and not be ashamed of my actions. I want to be courageous in the meantime. One author describes Paul this way. He's a veteran of hundreds of lashes and a thousand indignities. In other words, he has shown this courage that he's hoping for in the past, but he's, he's hoping that he will continue to have that courage. He expects that he'll continue to have that courage. Why? Because of the second hope that he clings to. He hopes that Christ will be exalted through him. Your courage for Christ exalts Christ. In Acts chapter 4, Early in the spread of the message of Jesus, Peter and John are arrested in the city of Jerusalem. They are thrown in prison, and the very following day they are hauled before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. And here's what happens. 
Peter speaks to that council and he says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And it goes on saying, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You see, those in authority ask, how did these men become so bold? How did these men become so confident? And the answer is, they have been with Jesus. Jesus is exalted in their courage. And Jesus is exalted in your courage. Christ can be exalted in us no matter the situation we find ourselves in. If it's great success, He is exalted in the triumph. In times of suffering, He is exalted in your bravery. We are being reminded of that in these days, these days of pandemic, where every day we get the updates. Every day the news tells us about the infection rates, the hospitalizations, and the death statistics. I am seeing get your affairs in order commercials on television now, meaning get your end-of-life financial affairs in order. We talk about death much more these days than we used to. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, your spiritual affairs are always in order. There is no way that a follower of Jesus Christ can lose even as we face death. If we go on living in this physical body, we live to exalt the Lord. If we die, we experience the great goal of our faith, learning that everything that has been promised is true with the Lord. Paul says it this way in verse 21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That is the compact super summary of the Christian life. Now, what does he mean when he says to live is Christ? In reality, he's already explained that. He's explained that in the letter that he has written to the Galatian church. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul is saying, I'm already living a sold-out life sold out to Jesus. To me, life is all about Christ. In that thought, there's an implicit challenge to us. How do we fulfill the sentence, for me to live is? How would you end that? For some of us, we would say, for me to live honestly is to seek comfort. That's my highest hope. I want ease. I want no stress. I want a soothing life because the greatest nightmare for me is stress. Others might say, for me to live is to seek approval. I want affirmation. I want to be liked. I want to be accepted. The greatest fear for me is rejection and having someone not like me. For others, for me to live is control. I want certainty. I want stability. Above all else, I abhor being dependent on somebody else. For others, we might say, for me to live is to seek power. I want influence. I want to win. My nightmare is humiliation. These are often life goals, but not so for Paul. I want my life to be all about Jesus. I recognize that in Him I gain more, much more than any selfish ends will bring. 
Here and now, I am part of what God is doing in the world. And when I die, there's going to be gain. That's Paul's point. And that is your life, believer, if you know Christ. You see, death comes to everyone. Death is 100% in every generation. Yet most of us simply try to put it out of our minds. But you can't do that in these days, can you? The talk of death is all around us. I remember a story about an evangelist who was speaking at a church. And at one point in his message, he asked the congregation, raise your hand if you want to go to heaven. And all around the room, hands went up. They wanted to go to heaven, except one man sitting in the front row, uh, an elderly man right in front of the speaker. And the speaker stopped. He was kind of surprised. He said, sir, don't you want to go to heaven? And that man replied, sure I do. But the way you're talking, it sounds like you're getting a bus together tonight. You see, we all want to go to heaven, but we don't want to go tonight. We all want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. But Paul sees death as a gateway, a gateway to gain. Death for Paul would be the end of the trauma. Death for Paul would be the end of the battle. After death, he'll experience the perfect peace that has been promised to him by a perfect Savior, and he is perfectly confident of that. So he's torn in his own mind in terms of what his preference will be. Let's read on, starting in verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Often when we think of a person who has died, we use the language of loss. But the language of loss doesn't apply for those who know Christ. It is gain. We gain a better body. We gain a better home. We gain a better inheritance, a better fellowship, better worship. And we lose only that which we don't need, yet we keep everything that matters. And we gain all that we long for. For those who are left behind, there may be loss. But for Christians, as they pass on to glory, it is infinite gain. And that, by the way, is why a Christ follower is invincible. Even if we die, we are not defeated. Death is not the end. We live on forever. Once you take that universal fear away, you are truly free. And you can have courage. And courage is contagious. Paul sees himself in a dilemma. He could depart and, and, and be with the Lord or remain and be a blessing to those around him. He's confident as he thinks this through that what will happen to him is that he will be asked to remain and continue to serve the Lord for the blessing of others. He sees his duty and he responds to his calling. Henry James once said this, the best use of your life is to invest it in something that will outlast it. Paul has invested his life in the spread of the gospel. He's invested his life in those people who will come to Christ that will outlive him in this life, but that will meet him in the next. And so let me ask you, young people who are watching, what will you invest your life in? Will it be the amassing of wealth that will fade or fame that is fleeting? Will it be just any job that just puts in time and gets by? Or 
Consider a calling like Paul's ministry, a calling like Paul's mission, allowing the gospel to flow through you so that others might come to faith and have eternal life. See, here's what we all must understand. No matter where you are in the stages of life, the only thing that you interact with today that will be present in eternity are the people that you know. That's all. No other thing, no matter how sturdy it seems, no matter how secure it seems, no other thing will last into eternity. It is just people. So live for Christ to win people. And Paul goes on to say, and I have a prayer request for you, Philippians, and by extension, for us, as the Holy Spirit has given us this Word of God. Go to verse 27, and we'll read his request. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. Paul's request boils down to this. I want you to live worthy lives. Verse 27. But the reality is that the New International Version here under-translates what's really there in that verse. The English Standard Version, which some of you are using, I know, actually has a better translation of the original Greek. It actually says there, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now, the idea of citizenship is important to retain because it's an important concept in Philippi. We hit it again in, in chapter 3, verse 20, when Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. See, for the Christ follower, we are a part of another kingdom. We represent another empire, the kingdom of God. Now, citizenship was uniquely important in Philippi, and it's worthwhile to keep the wording because, as I mentioned last week, this city was made a colony in the Roman Empire. Thus, all of the res residents who were free, not the slaves, but all the residents were automatically Roman citizens. It was a big deal to them. It gave them privileges that other people did not have. And Paul himself is a Roman citizen. But he's saying here, listen, that is not my primary identity. And it should not be your primary identity. Yes, be patriotic. Sure, love your country. Yes, seek to serve her well. But do not lose your primary identity. None of us who know Christ as personal Savior are primarily Americans. We are first citizens of the kingdom of God. Thus, we are called to live out our true status. Paul says, conduct yourselves in a worthy manner, worthy of the citizens of the kingdom. And what does that look like? Well, read on in the passage there in verse 27. It says, be united, be in one spirit. You need to have unity to face the tasks that are ahead. Philippi was not an easy place in which to be a Christian. They'll need to stick together. He goes on to say in verse 28, be courageous. 
Don't be frightened. In fact, frightened is the word that's translated there. And interestingly, it's a rare word. It's a word that's used of a panicked horse that is stampeding in the exactly wrong direction. That's what Paul is saying. Don't panic. Don't panic. Don't go the wrong way. Face into the storms of life with Jesus on your side. Verse 29, he says, be willing to suffer. All of these things make us worthy. You see, we are not only the beneficiaries of the suffering of Jesus, but we are, if we are living as the citizens of the kingdom, also participants in that suffering, if need be. This is what I call Paul's challenge to Jesus' first living. Jesus' first living means that there are going to be times in our life when we so identify with Jesus that we experience what He has experienced before us. Paul says the suffering has been granted to you in verse 29. In other words, God graciously gives you this opportunity to suffer the way Jesus suffers. Now, that's exactly the opposite of what we want. Here is where the Bible is so tremendously radical. It's often also the opposite of what sometimes is taught from the Word of God. There will be some people who tell us, well, it is always God's will that you are well. It is always God's will that you are rich. It is always God's will that you are prosperous. And if you're not healthy, rich, and prosperous, it means that there must be something wrong with your faith or you must be in sin in some way. That teaching is totally wrong. Listen to what Peter says. He picks up the theme in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. How can this be true? When we so naturally think the opposite, we naturally want to avoid suffering, to go the other way. But Paul says, it's granted to you. See, here's the point. We need to remember that all of God's great purposes in the world for this life and the life to come came as a result of His willingness to suffer for us. Nothing of eternal worth is achieved with ease. So as we suffer for Him in the struggle of life, we are actually suffering with Him. In so doing, we demonstrate our allegiance to Him. We are killing pride. We are gaining reward. We are confounding Christ's enemies and spreading the gospel. It may take suffering, but it is ultimately worth it. To live is Christ, to die is gain. In verse 30, he identifies the fact that he realizes that the Philippians are suffering as well. Philippi was not an easy place to be a believer, and neither is Stockton, and neither is anywhere when we truly stand up for Christ. But that's what we must do, live for Christ. What awaits us is gain. And that gain is through the doorway of death. Author Catherine Marshall reflects about what it's like to die. It's a fictional story in in which she puts this particular scene about a 12-year-old boy named Kenneth. 
And in the story, Kenneth is suffering from an incurable illness. As he grows weaker and weaker, he begins to worry about what death will be like. And at one point, he turns to his mom and he says, Mom, does it hurt? He means, does death hurt? His mom is totally taken off guard by the question. She, she bursts into tears. She has to run into the other room to kind of compose herself. And finally, after bringing herself back together, she comes back into the room and she says this, Kenneth, do you remember when you were younger and you used to play so hard that you would be too tired to undress yourself? Sometimes you just fell asleep right where you were. But in the morning when you woke up, you found yourself in your own bed, in your own room. Your father had come with his strong arms and he'd carry you there. And Kenneth, death is like that. You will wake up to find yourself in your own room where you belong because Jesus cared for you and Jesus carried you in his strong arms. So now... Christian, you have a job to do, here and now, but this job will end one day, and then what comes will be glory. But I'm aware of the fact that some of us watching this may not have that assurance. Maybe you're not ready, and maybe all this talk of disease and death has caused fear to grip your heart like a vice. You can be ready because... The promise is real, but so is the alternative. What I mean is, is this. In God's justice, sin must be punished. Jesus took that punishment on himself on the cross, and you can either accept the fact that he took your punishment in his suffering and that now his forgiving work can be applied to you here and now by repentance and faith, and you can claim that promise of eternal life, or you can reject him and be punished yourself in a real place called hell. You see, here's what people who don't read the Bible fail to realize. Jesus talked more about hell than any other person in the Bible. More than any other, he's the one who addresses that issue. He knows that it's hard. And he knows that it's real. And he knows that it's awful. And so today, if you're saying, well, I'll take my chances, I want you to know the odds are bad. But Jesus also said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, the way to the Father is the way to forgiveness. It's a way to a new life here on earth, and it's a way to promise after this life. As you enter this way, you enter through faith, and faith is surrender and trust. And when you surrender to Jesus, you're surrendering to love, a love that has already taken the punishment that you deserve on himself. And that love forgives. And it will always work. It will work for you. Paul in Romans 10 verse 13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus has the power to change lives today. Jesus today is preparing people to face eternity because of the promise of God. Jesus today 
is giving forgiveness and hope and a new start to life. And all of this comes as you turn away from yourself and towards Him by faith, and you ask for the forgiveness that He offers. I say all that because maybe there's some of you watching this broadcast, and you know that's just what you need to do. Because you know right now you're not ready, but you can be. And if that's you, I'm going to ask you to express faith in Jesus in a prayer. Faith happens on the inside, but we express it to the Lord in prayer. And you can pray silently right where you sit. God will hear. In fact, I'd like us all to bow our heads and let's go into an attitude of prayer. But for some of us, if this is exactly what you need, hope in Christ, I'd ask you to pray a prayer similar to what I say. Silently in your heart, you pray this. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want to be ready to face eternity. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died on the cross and took my punishment, and I believe you rose again, and you can forgive me today. Grant me the hope that comes from your love. And give me purpose in this life. Lord, I don't know how many people prayed that prayer or something like it this morning, but I believe there's some because I believe that this is exactly where you want us all to start on this journey called the Christian life. And Lord, I pray that you would make yourself real to all of us today. I pray that we would all desire what Paul desires most of all, to live a worthy life to be worthy of our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Help us live for you and help us to retain the promise there is gain coming in glory. In your name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me a moment ago, I'd like to send you an encouraging booklet called Now What? Living Out Your Christian Faith. It's just some good words of advice about starting this journey of faith. And to get that booklet to you, I need to know where to send it. So if you would text the word faith to the number 209-257-8768. Text the word faith to that number 209 209- 257-8768. We'll respond to you with a form that you fill out with your contact information so that I can get this booklet sent out to you. We love to get it into your hands. Well, this morning we're privileged to have contemporary music artists Carrie Job and Cody Carnes provide us with today's closing song entitled The Blessing.
As we conclude our service this morning, let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we leave this service with hallelujah ringing in our hearts. Praise the Lord 
Lord, we pray that you would help us through this time, even though it's difficult for many, keep our praises alive. Heal us, bless us, use us for your glory. Make us the blessing to others that you want us to be. Thank you for the opportunity to be together in this way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for being part of our worship this morning.